Welcome back to another episode of Agile Way podcast, where we explore challenges organizations face on their Agile journey. How to become great Scrum Master, how to change your leadership style, or how to embrace agility at the organization level. I'm Suzy Shukova, Agile coach, certified Scrum trainer, and author of the great Scrum Master book and Agile leader book, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm passionate about business agility, organizational culture, and Agile leadership, and that was the reason why I decided to start this podcast, to share with you my experiences and stories from my Agile journey. second series of this podcast focuses on business agility and it's sponsored by Emergence Journal. Welcome Dana Pulayeva, author, trainer and coach. She's passionate about unleashing leadership potential in teams and organizations. And today we are going to talk about coaching and facilitation. And my first question to you is what is the number one lesson you learn yourself about agility? Hi, Zuzi. It's nice to be here. And the number one lesson I learned last year about agility is that um, we shouldn't be assuming anything. And one of the first things that we always assumed with agile teams was that they need to be co-located and working face-to-face. And as we know from last year, that is no longer necessary. And as long as we are in the same mental space, that's all that makes the team productive. So tell me more about that mental space. Yeah, so mental space is really about uh, making sure the team is aligned on um, what's the team norms, how we work around here. It's making sure that team is aligned on the goal, why they are working on something and what outcome they should be expecting. So it's making sure that whatever assumptions that teams, uh, team members are making um, are clear to other team members so they can be in that same mental space, um, even though that they might be working from different parts of the country or different parts of the uh, world, they are aligned on the goal and the ways of working and um, on the outcome that they're looking to get. And speaking of that, we often talk about social connectiveness and this relationship, etc. So uh, how do you create that in a virtual space? Because yeah. in face-to-face, we just go for a coffee, we go for a drink, we hang out for lunch, we just talk, right? But what do you do in virtual space? Yeah, it's very interesting because one thing that I noticed um, when we all started working remotely is that these Scrum events became part of social events as well. So it's no longer 15 minutes and you're there just to uh, align on what everyone is working on, but it's also the time for the team to hear from each other to maybe even check in on how everyone is doing. So it became very important, even for those members of the Scrum team that are optional <laughs> by the Scrum Guide, it became very important for them to be there because it became part of that social contract, social interaction. In addition to that, the teams that I'm working with right now, they came up with all sorts of additional events to maintain that connectedness. One of the things that people do, um, they do sometimes called fika or just a coffee break that is 
not scheduled, there is no specific agenda, but you can connect with the other person and then talk about what's important to you. Or teams do um, a little bit of a game night, uh, which is virtual. And you know, luckily there are many tools right now that's available that can simulate that gaming environment and the team can play together. So that's what I've seen working even in the virtual space. And of course, uh, there are many companies now that do things like um, you can order um, cheese making kits. You can do um, some of the teams that I was working with, they were doing the gingerbread house decoration and we had um, the magician coming in. So there are all sorts of offers out there that you, know, you can investigate and definitely bring that fun aspect into the virtual space of the team. Mm, oh, great. I would like to do as my team the gingerbread decoration, yeah. virtually, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, we also talk a lot when we meet uh, on different conferences and spaces, etc., about liberating structures and facilitation. So can you elaborate a little bit more about that? Because people often don't know what it is. So if you can start from the beginning and then what you learn from it. Mm -hmm. uh, so liberating structures are a collection of different facilitation techniques. That's the simplest way to think about them. Um, obviously, it's more than that because every structure um, represents um, more uh, complex and uh, deeper practice that exists elsewhere. One example might be open space. There is a separate open space practitioners that study open space and use it in their role. And there is an open space liberating structure that is a simplified version of that, that is easier to pick up and easier for a new facilitator to bring into the space that she or he is working in and take advantage of that. And the same with the other 32 structures. So the simplified version of a more uh, complex facilitation practice that can be easily picked up. And because they're all codified, it's almost the alphabet of facilitation techniques that you can bring in and you can use them individually or you can connect them into more interesting combination or the building structure strings that can become even more powerful in achieving the outcome. So that's the <laughs> kind of high level what they are, but each and every one of them, I love them for the fact that they can be used um, in the physical space when the team is in the same room, but they also convert very easily to um, use in the um, virtual space. There's the use of the breakout rooms in Zoom or Teams or any other software that allows that subdivision of the large group to small groups and then um, having ability to drive the conversation from um, a large group into those small subgroups and then recombining the outcomes together. Now let's go a little bit deeper into your experience being a facilitator. So uh, what was the most difficult for you when you start facilitating? Can you share a story maybe about something like a difficult facilitation moment or what you learned from it? Hmm, difficult facilitation moment. Yeah, actually, I, <laughs> I'm going to share one that was very surprising to me because one of the structure that um, I think is the easiest one to facilitate is called one, two, four, all. And it's a structure that I think every facilitator knows because it's so easy to pick up. And it's a structure where you start with one person just um, first reflecting on the question and writing down the answer. Then two people having a conversation together, discussing the individual answers, and then uh, joining a four people group and then sharing those answers and coming up with 
one or two that needs to be brought back into the uh, bigger group and shared. So this structure works everywhere. It's like my silver bullet kind of structure. And so <laughs> this one team that you know I was working with recently, I brought in this structure to them and it totally blew up. It did not work. And I was so surprised because like it worked all the time, right? It's, it, it never fails and it failed this time around. And so after reflecting on that, what I realized is that the whole notion of filtering out the ideas and only sharing the best ones was not good for this team because they wanted to hear all idea. They wanted to hear all the voices. So they were very passionate about inclusion and making sure that everything is heard by everyone. And for them, one, two, for all did not work at all. And so, yeah, and that was very interesting reflection for me as well, because I know it works. <laughs> I know it's such a great, powerful structure. And, you know, in this specific case, it didn't. And so one way for me uh, to um, address that need for hearing each and every voice was to switch a different structure. And the one I picked was Conversation Cafe. And that's where every person in the group gets a chance to speak for one minute and then, you know, share the ideas and then they build on from that. But that's where every voice is being heard. And because this group was very, was very small for them, Conversation Cafe was more powerful and resonated the best than in the one to I was wondering what would you recommend to the facilitators who are new to this uh, facilitation who are just starting? Maybe they went through this liberating structure library, right? And they feel like mm -hmm. lost or uh, unsecured or unsure. So what is your recommendation for people at the beginning of their facilitation journey? The way how I learned about liberating structures, I've taken uh, a class. Um, there was an immersion workshop where um, we all first experienced all these different structures. And now the big advantage is that there are many user groups um, that are running liberating structures. And because we're all virtual, you can join a group in Seattle, you can join the group I'm running in New York, you can join a group in Europe, and you can learn by attending these different um, groups and experiencing how liberating structure facilitators running those structures. Uh, and they all have the, their own different style and slightly, slightly different flavor so by experiencing them in action then you're a participant and learning from the other facilitators it's the best way to learn they're easy to pick up but you have to experience them at response and then when you're in that room right with a team or with some group of people mm -hmm. and you're just about to start what's the what's the mindset of a facilitator or what would you recommend the people to like uh, how to feel or what to look at or yeah, I used to, I always say, let's try an experiment <laughs> because that gives me permission to fail, right? Because if I'm coming uh, in as someone who is absolutely proficient in everything and is so perfect, then you know, failing is not an option. But when I'm coming with this experimental mindset and I'm saying, listen, I have never tried this before and I think <laughs> it might work here, but it may also fail. So who is willing to try? So that playfulness and experimental mindset is usually what's uh, helping me to bring in new um, structures and almost ask for permission to um, fail because it's an experiment. And that's very true. I remember doing it myself as well in many cases. And people usually, surprising to me, but they usually appreciate it and they usually say, yeah, sure, we'll try, yeah. no worries. 
and then they even give me valuable feedback so uh, that's a good practice yeah i need to remember it more um speaking of facilitation you know we talk also about coaching so um you spend a lot of effort on becoming a professional coach so can you share more about that journey yeah so um i was curious about um different um, coaching uh, schools and different coaching um, styles. And the one that I heard the most about uh, in terms of individual coaching was um, coactive coaching. And um, I signed up to take uh, first uh, just the foundation, which is, you know, very cool session that gives you an overview of all the different um, other um, classes that coming afterwards so what i've seen in foundation was really good and so i signed up for the rest uh, of training and then also once i was done with the training i went through the entire certification process that definitely deepened my knowledge and understanding of the model and i found it very useful um, in not only working with individual clients but also in bringing it to the teams and um, one of the things that resonated the most was um, aligning on the values so I knew that before, but it didn't resonate as much when I actually experienced uh, an exercise that my coach introduced me to, um, finding the values and really defining them in such a way that they resonate with you. They become uniquely yours. So it's not just about honesty or um, courage, but what adjective can you add to that? How can you make it specifically yours? So crafting values in the way that they resonate with you individually or even with the team, that's what makes a difference. And I've seen it um, becoming a very interesting exercise that really brings out the nature of the team, that social connectedness and that um, you know, mental space that is shared um, is coming through creating the values as well. So that whole coactive program, is it good mm -hmm. for uh, beginners, like people who have no clue what the coaching is about, or should they do some research before? And maybe the follow-up uh, question from the other side of the spectrum, I think you were not a beginner when you joined, so was it still good for you with your experience and uh, something like around those lines? Yeah, absolutely. So yes, um, it was actually very good for me because while I was not a beginner as an agile coach, I never had a professional coaching background. And so uh, <laughs> the way how I was approaching agile coaching was more from consulting or mentoring stance and less from the coaching stance, which I learned about when I went through the cooperative coaching. And it is very good for people who haven't been um, introduced to coaching before. As a matter of fact, in the first class, we had all sorts of people from all you know, walks of life. We had people who were scuba divers, instructors. We had people who were teachers. We had people who were um, nail salon um, professionals. So we had all sorts of people who were uh, curious about coaching. And then, you know, obviously, as we went deeper into classes, some of them didn't come back, but some of them continued um, with the rest of the classes. And so the model itself is very good. And the way how the um, teaching about coaching and how much practice that we get during those classes is definitely something that's useful for anyone who is interested in um, bringing coaching to their teams or um, even taking coaching as um, the individual um, practice. 
the other uh, model that I was looking into, or the other school of coaching that I was looking into, uh, which is, I think you went through, uh, it's called ORSC. Yeah, I did. And yes, and so what I learned about ORSC is that that is not the one to get started from. This is a good one. If you already have the coaching skills, it's a good one to take on to uh, specifically focus on how do you apply these coaching skills in working with teams and organizations and this uh, concept of third entities or lots of interesting concepts. But if you don't know anything about coaching, that's not a good place to start. Yeah, I would agree with that. So uh, that requires some basic practice, I would even say, not just knowledge, but also already a practice to be able to go through that program. But uh, yeah. A great school, by the way. I'm still thinking about Coactive, if I should go there or not. So I didn't make up my mind, but I'm sort of tempted to like every yeah. now and then. So you invested into this professional coaching skills. How that helps you in your practice being an agile coach, how it helps your clients maybe, how it helps you to help them to be more successful. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because when I finished certification um, with Coactive Institute, but it left me, it left me confused. <laughs> and <laughs> I'll explain why, because uh, for, uh, you know, for a bit, I was thinking, should I stop working in the agile coaching space altogether and just shift to working as the professional coach? Because I found that um, while I was very scared um, at the beginning to coach individuals, I was more comfortable coaching teams. After going through co-active training, I found more joy from coaching individuals. And especially because I could see almost immediate results. It's like walking the client, even in one session, um, applying co-active uh, model, you can see the difference. You can see how for people, the light bulb goes on. There's something shifting, something is happening for them right in that session. And I never had that happen for my Agile teams before. So that's where my confusion was like, should I switch? And I think, you know, a couple of people I've worked with, uh, they've seen me going through that confusion. But, you know, after a while, I decided that, no, I still want to continue being an agile coach. And, you know, I'd like to bring that, um, you know, ability to uh, really listen into my um, agile coaching conversations and you know, asking the right questions, asking the powerful questions and being really um in search for those questions that make people go, huh, I never thought about that. <laughs> and you know, shifting perspectives, I think one of the things in um, co-active coaching is called balance coaching, where you take a problem and um, you find what is the original perspective the person is having on that problem. And then you start exploring different perspectives that are totally unrelated. And you can even pick something very, very silly like maybe it's a custom of a country that you love. And so you first get them connected with that custom or something funny. And then you ask them to look at that problem through that perspective of that custom or something silly and they discover new insights. And so being able to bring that into teams conversation whether it's in the retrospective or um, you know, other opportunity to, to refocus and find a different lens um, to look at the problem is very powerful. And I can relate to that. I remember when my horse training where I felt like I will never use it in a professional environment because those people will never go for it. And then I tried unintentionally in some team conversation and I was like, wow, 
that really helps. That crazy thing really helps. So I think that's um, sometimes the magic of coaching, those type of things. Yeah. So I'm still sort of like, you know, we had those people who never went to the coaching. Like I've got a technical background. So when I first mm -hmm. hear about coaching, I was like, no, that will never work. Not for me like this. So what would you recommend uh, to those type of uh, individuals who are like feeling uh, disconnected with this coaching world, facilitation world as well? Like how to get closer? Do you have any hint for that? <laughs> Let's run an experiment. <laughs> yeah, but that's so distant. I remember still myself. I still know how you felt, right? Like there were people saying, oh, it's coaching and it helped me. I was like, no, it will never help anybody. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So again, it's giving it a try, right? So convincing them to give it one try, give it run an experiment, helping them to at least get a taste for it, and then maybe um, see how it might be useful in the specific problem they're trying to solve. So what was it for you? What brings you to the coaching? What brought me to coaching, I actually started um, about, I think, three or four years ago. I was in that um, you know, work on the road, kind of, so to speak, uh, when I was thinking, um, I have my CSP, so where do I go next? Do I want to become a certified Scrum trainer, or do I want to be a certified Scrum coach? And so I was at that fork for almost two years, because it's like, I like this, and I like that, and I don't know where to go, and then I'm stuck there. And so at some point, I realized that Having made a step to the right, I would have been walking the, the path. Having made a step to the left, the same thing. I would have been walking the path. And then being stuck in that fork of the road is not helping anyone. So I decided that I'm going to make this small experiment. I'm going to experiment with running my own trainings without you know, committing to the very long path, as you know, becoming certified Scrum trainer. So I tried that, and at the same time, I decided, let me try a small experiment and let me sign up for this in fundamentals uh, in Proactive and see how that resonates. And so based on those two small experiments, so making one step on the right and one step on the left, somehow coaching resonated more with me. So after that, getting a first taste, that's what made me, um, helped me uh, make a decision to uh, move forward in the coaching. So I guess I have a last question for you. You know, Agile changed past 20 years quite significantly, how we see it now, et cetera. So if you can try to look into the future, where do you see Agile in like additional 20 years from now? 20 years from now. What is the future of Agile in general? 20 years is just, uh, so I don't mean like tomorrow, right? Like what is the future of Agile? I think we're using it everywhere but we're also embracing it as a mindset more than as a um, you know, practice that has to be done. And when I say everywhere, it means we're changing um, environment, we're changing, uh, we're solving big issues that are global issues. We're solving them using Agile and because we are able to conduct more experiments, we're able to uh, embrace that ambiguity and uncertainty. And uh, we're not fixed on, we need to have 15 minutes stand up and we, have, we need to have you know, retrospective at the end. So it's not just about specific events it's not about specific roles it's about that mindset that we're bringing to solving bigger problems thank you very much for joining me on this postcard it was my pleasure to host you here thank you Zizi. it was my pleasure to be here in a summary let's try and experiment give it a try practice and be open to new ideas and concepts
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Agile Way podcast hosted by Zuzi Shakova, author of the Great Scrum Master book and Agile Leader book. If you love listening to this podcast, please leave us a review. If there is any topic you are particularly interested in and would like to hear another episode on it, let me know. For more information about me and my Agile classes, visit our website sochova.com S-O-C-H-O-V-A dot com Thank you for listening.